Hey, everybody. Producer John Wright here. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know our guest this week, Amber Scora, has a great book, which her and Bart talk a lot about in this conversation. It's called Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion and Finding a Life. And you'll find it on Amazon. We recommend it highly. There's a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Okay, on with the show. Listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. I am glad to be with you right now, whenever right now is in this strange podcast land. Even though, to be honest, it's not my right now, but it was. It was, yes. And in a strange way, you were with me in this moment because I think about the people that listen to this podcast when I'm doing it. Even when I'm talking to other people, kind of like I always am aware that on one level, we're just having a one-on-one conversation, like the one I'm going to share with you in just a moment. But on another level, I'm very aware that I'm kind of the proxy for anyone who listens to the show. And I'm trying to talk in a way that makes it interesting for everybody, especially those of you that send me notes or that, you know, go on the Facebook page and, 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 and communicate because, you know, I, I lurk there. I look at those conversations. They give me ideas. Um, but then there are all these other people that just send emails. They go to bartcampolo.org or they go to humanizemepodcast.com and uh, those come right to me. There's at least a small chunk of our audience that I have a personal relationship with. So sometimes I'm thinking about individual people when we're doing the show and I'm trying to think of something that would be helpful to this person or that person. Or I'm just, the the thought of Jesse Wells or Savannah Lawson or or Beth Johnson sitting out there listening to the podcast, it makes me happy. And you say like, where did you get those names? And well, I mean, to be honest with you, I got those names off the Patreon patrons list. Because those are three people that are supporting the show. And and so is Roy Bartles and Austin Nelson, who I know, and Dan Jones and Patty McDonald. And even Ali Tamposi, who I really know because Ali is like a daughter to me um, in real life because she is like the girlfriend of my son and has been for years. And and I don't know if you noticed, as opposed to last week, a lot of those people are women that, you know... I mean, like, again, you know, I'm not into diversity for diversity's sake, but I like the idea that we're having conversations that um, connect across that gender gap. And I think you're going to, speaking of women, oh my gosh, you're so going to like the woman I talked to today. Um, And I'm not going to make this introduction super loud um, for uh, Amber Scora. Amber, I first encountered Amber when somebody sent me an article that she published a couple weeks ago in the New York Times called Surviving the Death of My Son After the Death of My Faith. As soon as I read it, it was just, it was a heartbreaking article, but it was also, I could just tell there was a whole 
big story behind it. And uh, John reached out to Amber, and she she's recently published a book called Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion and Finding a Life. And, uh, you know, the more I, I studied up on her, I, I saw her on Trevor Noah's show. And it was funny because Trevor Noah was asking her mainly about, like, what's it like to be a Jehovah's Witness? What's it like to show up at the door and knock on it? Like, what do you say? And it was interesting, but I thought, like, there's so much more going on with this woman. And, uh, boy, there was. This is probably one of the longer conversations that I will ever share on Humanize Me. But, like, I just, you know, I was talking to John. He he, he listened to the conversation. I said, well, what are you going to cut there? He's like, I don't know what to cut. She shares a lot in common with people on this podcast, a lot of our audience, in that she's somebody who migrated out of faith, but like she was way deep in a way extreme version of Jehovah's Witnesses. And she was, you know, a missionary in, you're a preacher as they call it, in China. And she's just had this kind of, you know, epic journey. But the thing that struck me was just what a fine, what a together person she is. Um, Well, listen, I'm not going to tell you much more about Amber except to say I think you're going to like this conversation. And there's stuff in there here about her losing her son and her facing up to that. There's stuff in here about being a Jehovah's Witness. There's stuff in here about, you know, China. Um, I think there's there's a lot here. So I, I anyway, I hope you like the conversation. I sure did. So this is me and Amber Scora. Um, and I'll catch you on the other side. Amber. Hi. Hi. So listen, I, I you like there's no way you, you have ever heard of my podcast or me. Um, especially because you grew up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you had yes. grown up evangelical Christian, you would totally know who I was. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, we because were not my dad is this my dad you. is this ultra famous evangelical Christian oh, fascinating. pastor. And you yourself, you left the faith? Yeah, I was an evangelical Christian for 30 years and kind of a, like like way in, um, an, an, an inner city missionary um, and a guy who spoke on platforms all over the world, um, you know, kind of to lots of people, you know, the, the, kind of the preacher. Like in your book, you talk about, yeah. you know, a preacher who doesn't listen well um, or, or like mm-hmm. it's not good to be curious if you're a preacher. And uh, yeah. and I guess I was a curious preacher too. Mm. Um which is that what is that what mode you're in since you wrote this book? Are you like the explainer of of what it's like to be inside Jehovah's Witnesses? It's funny because uh, my first book event, the person I was having the conversation with was asking me a lot of details about what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and what like sort of the nitty gritty side of the religion, and I'm never actually that interested in talking about that stuff because to me it just seems so mundane. I'm, what I'm more interested in talking about generally is sort of like these bigger thematic things that questions such as like, why is it that, for example, me and many, many other people like me, you know, relatively intelligent, reasonably intelligent people can get to the point where they, they, like they don't think for themselves or that you can't even think, see things that you later can see, even though you have the same brain. So that's kind of stuff that I'm questioning at this point in my life. I think, you know, as you, after you leave, it's for me, it's been 10 years or so. You go through different phases 
And I'm just, I think I'm more at a different phase now where I've kind of like all getting bogged down in the details is like, uh, <laughs> you know, you can go to Wikipedia for that. <clears throat> but I'm interested in what it is that makes us so that get so many people get sort of sucked into these kinds of really intense, high control groups. Well, you know, I, I think that that's, I, I mean, I wrote a book about leaving evangelical Christianity. Um, with my mm-hmm. dad, who still is an evangelical Christian, it was a back and forth, a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Which, of course, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you can't have a back and forth with the family you left behind because they're not supposed to talk to you. Yeah. Are, are, are they still not talking to you? So for my family, it's, yeah, I mean, my family is a little, most of my family are Jehovah's Witnesses. My brother, fortunately, never got baptized. So in the Jehovah's Witnesses you know, it's, these groups, there's like a lot of, I don't know about evangelical Christians, but like in groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, there's like, it's very legalistic almost. Like there's all these rules and there's like, you know, once you've been in it long enough, there's sometimes workarounds, sometimes not. But one of the weird rules is like, if you don't get baptized, which most Jehovah's Witnesses are pushed to get baptized when they're between the ages of like starting at maybe nine or 10 up into being a teenager. So this is if you're raised in it, that is they don't baptize you as a baby, but you're supposed to make this choice when you're like 10 years old and then you're held to that choice for the rest of your life. So the key to not ever getting shunned is that if you never actually technically got baptized, they can't really say that you chose it and then became apostate. So with my brother, he never got baptized. He sort of flew under the radar a little bit. He was a bit younger than my sister and I. So now um, when I left, he is not a Jehovah's Witness. So he can talk to me and we do have a relationship, which I'm really grateful for. Um, but my sister, on the other hand, this is very funny. These little quirks of the groups is that my sister, although my brother and I are basically the same kind of people, like we just have kids and like we live our lives. My sister will talk to him, but she won't talk to me because I got baptized and left. And he, whereas he knew about it, didn't get baptized and left, but he's okay. <laughs> but you defiled it by leaving it. Exactly. Like it's just, they have this very, a real fear of what the group calls an apostate, which is basically someone who believed and then didn't believe. Basically that's worse than being a child molester or a murderer because it's the one sin for which there's no forgiveness. Yeah. I mean, I, over the weekend, I read your book, you know, cover to cover. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I know. Cause like you, you, when you get interviewed, you always know if somebody actually read it yeah, or totally. not. Um, per- <laughs> so tell me, what was your book about? Yeah, um, totally. What I resonated with was that you weren't just in it. You were, you were in it fully. Like you were, you were raised up in it, but also, you know, you went the missionary route. You were out there knocking on the doors. You went to oh, yeah. China for crying out loud. Yeah. I was too. Like I ran a missionary organization. I preached like impassioned sermons and Mm -hmm. I was into a very loving God. I mean, I had a very like benevolent kind of Christianity that I was working for most of the time, but nevertheless, I genuinely believed it. And then I, over time, like I, you know, mine was a much slower process than yours. And I didn't have another person on the other end of the email asking yeah. the questions. For me, it was all an internal thing. Yeah. Um, but when I finally got out, when I finally realized there was nothing left and I had like moved 
I become more and more and more liberal and more and more progressive and then more and more you know, heretical until I was finally done. Mm-hmm. Seven or eight years later, I find myself wondering, looking back at myself as a young person going, did I really believe it then? Devout Christians now will say to me, like, oh, you probably never really believe it. You were faking it the whole time. And I'm going, like, no, like I, <laughs> like I did this and I did that. Like, there's no way I did that if I didn't believe it. But in the back of my mind now, the nagging doubt is, did I really? Yeah, for me, it was different. I really know that I believed it. I think that like the thing I do struggle with is understanding how it was that I could have believed it because the longer I'm away from it, the more ridiculous it seems. Um, but it, I think for me, because... I, the big thing that had the hold on me was, well, there were two things, one of which was fear, because from a very young age, I heard about the apocalypse, Armageddon. And, um, you know, even a child of like six or seven can understand the very simplistic terms that someone's laying out before you, like life or death, you're going to die if you don't do this. So it had a real impact on me. And I don't know, I think I was somewhat of a sort of spiritually minded child, if you want to call it that. Like I, I, I was inclined towards belief, definitely. Um, so that was a big thing for me. And then the other thing was is that I loved this idea of living forever in this paradise. So Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that everyone's going to heaven. They think that the Jehovah's Witnesses who survive Armageddon are going to live forever in paradise on earth, much like Adam and Eve did, you know, in the Bible. So um, that was another thing that had a real hold on me. And I think w- the reality is, is that when the amazing thing about the human mind is that wanting something to be true is the same as it being true. Like I think I wanted it to be true so badly that it became true to me. And I can say that I, I don't have any doubts that at the time I believed it. So, I mean, that, and in some ways, you know, you were saying that like to you, one of the fascinating ideas is how could that be? How could you believe something like that? Mm-hmm. Now? Yeah. I sort of, yeah, now, but, but I think like, Especially for you, it seems like you grew up, both parents believed this stuff. Yeah. Your grandmothers believed this stuff. You, your grandmother took you to the, the, the kingdom hall from yeah. the time you were eight years old. A part of me goes, even though the belief itself is irrational, it's totally rational when you're nine years old to believe what every authority figure in your life tells you is true. Totally. And then also, I think... The reality is, is that there's so much in life that is unexplainable that sometimes you need something irrational to explain the rational. Like, I think that's why we're so inclined as a species to create religions and dogma and belief, because there is a lot that you can't explain. Therefore, you need something that will give it some kind of a framework. What I responded to in Christianity was the community. Like the ideas did not uh, in and of themselves, they were not compelling to me. And I, I didn't experience enough of that fear. Yeah. You know, I wasn't raised with the apocalypse hanging over me all the time and, or, and I wasn't raised, even though I was raised by Christian parents, they were not big original sin people. Yeah. And original sin is a really good, like if you convince somebody like from the get go, like you're you're messed up. Like you're wrong. Like you don't deserve to be here. That's a great starter kit. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely, but I didn't have either the fear of the apocalypse or this deep sense of inadequacy in myself. And so that's where they went wrong. (laughs) Look at you now. That's where they went wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> but what appealed to me about Christianity was being part of a community that had a mission to save the world. And, and you know, it, it always felt to me from the outside, like the Jehovah's Witnesses were that same thing. Like they had this deep compassion for the rest of the world and they, they were trying to save us. But like when I was reading your book, my, my sense was that like you were kind of almost contemptuous of the people that you were witnessing to. Like you thought of them as self-satisfied jerks who were going to burn in hell because they didn't listen to you. Well, the thing is, I think as a Jesuit is that you have to do whatever you do to get you through the day because so many people are rude to you (laughs) (laughs) or just like um, ignore you or treat you sort of with disdain. And I also, I do have a sort of sense of humor about it. And I think I always did. So in my book, when I talk about that, it was, you know, it was sort of like, there was a way to kind of turn things around in your head where you felt yourself, you, you, it made it possible for you to do this work. I mean, consider how many hours I spent calling on doors and just driving around in cars doing, I mean, we're talking years before I even got to China. Um, yeah, what's the percentage of people that actually talk to you? Like so, hardly any, honestly. And the only time I did start to find success was when I started to focus on immigrants in my territory, like Chinese immigrants, because I mean, part of the reason was that they wanted to learn English. I, they, many of them admitted that to me, um, but also they just had never heard of us before, so they didn't know what we were all about, and they were more willing to entertain us. Plus, Chinese people are very hospitable. And they generally would be hospitable if you came to, you know, come to visit them culturally. Yeah, I wondered about that. But even in the United States, or even in Canada, rather, you found that, like, they would listen at a higher percentage than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with Western countries is, number one, Jehovah's have been around forever. Um, and they've been kind of a, sort of a, a nuisance to be put up with at best forever. And also when you know, the, a country, I don't know, I didn't preach in America when I was a witness because I was Canadian, but in Canada, it's, it's not a very religious place. Um, it's pretty secular these days. And so the idea of just someone coming and trying to save you from the Bible is a little laughable to most the average Canadians that live in a city. Um, so yeah, you don't, you don't get much response. <laughs> did you ever figure out a pitch that worked? Like, was there any, did you? Oh, we tried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we had a whole book that was put out by our, the leaders, um, where it would sort of have like objections that people would give. For example, if someone says I'm busy or say this, or if someone says I'm an evangelical Christian, say this, um, if someone is Jewish, say that, um, we sort of had these tried and tested means of overcoming objections, you know, uh, and yeah. so, yeah, we would have little things that we would try, but to be honest, it, no, they don't really work. <laughs> Most people just said they're not interested and we'd be like, I understand if you're not interested in me coming <laughs> to your door, but would you be interested in living forever in paradise? And people are like, nope, still not interested. <laughs> <laughs> but I often said when I was a witness that, because I, as I said, I was a true believer. I often said to myself or to others, Oh, it's so lucky that I was born into the religion because if someone ever oh came gosh. to my door, I would never listen to them. Like I would be like, get off my doorstep, you weirdo. Right. But then the interesting thing is that all of these things would lead to certain mental challenges that I would have to somehow reconcile like inconsistencies because, you know, we believed that the scripture said that Jehovah God would call the person who like the person with the right heart condition 
would be like inclined to the truth, no matter what, like whether I was born into it or not, it should have meant that my heart, who I was, would have been receptive as a child or as an adult sitting in a house that got called on by the door. So, you know, there was always these things that were inconsistencies that you would have to reconcile. Um, And the main way that you reconcile something like that when you're a true believer, like the way that I was, was by just not thinking about it, just sort of dismissing it or what I've come to learn people sometimes refer to experts refer to as thought blocking. When you get a thought that's inconsistent with the worldview you have, and you're so vested in the worldview, the way that you deal with it is just by putting the thought out of your mind. <laughs> and it worked. I know. Cause the, I mean, because the obvious ancillary is instead of saying, aren't I lucky that I just, you know, that, that like that I was born into this truth mm-hmm. is to go like, what are the chances that I happen to be born into the one out of all the false <laughs> religions in the world? Like, what are the chances that I in my so little lucky. Canadian... Yeah, just happen to be born into the one true faith. I know. Um, and everybody else thinks that they're born into the one true faith, but I happen to actually have had that happen. I know. And like, I really did think that was true, <laughs> which seems laughable now. You know, but yeah. When I was reading your your book, it was it was maybe the strongest time when I've, I've sort of thought of that term that Richard Dawkins uses called a meme, an idea that spreads from person to person within a culture. Yeah. And that has within the idea self-replication. And I thought Jehovah's Witness seems like, you know, that whole apocalypse thing. And like it, it felt like to me that if as a kid you really grasped that, um, and this idea that like, listen, don't get any higher education. You won't need it. But I thought to myself, what a brilliant thing to, to, in, to put in a religion don't mm-hmm. get any education. Like what a great way to make sure that somebody stays in your religion. Oh, it's a great way because when I finally did get myself into college as already in my thirties, when I left the religion, it was the first semester. I remember very clearly in an American history class of all things, like we're not talking like a class that was teaching me philosophy or critical thinking. We're just learning history. I sat in that class and learned some things where I thought, oh my goodness, if I had learned this when I was 18, I would have left the religion. And the thing that I had learned was that basically that the roots of the Jehovah's Witnesses were not this sort of like um, magical like beginnings that I had been taught they were, that we were sort of like this extension of the, the only extension of true first century Christianity. And, you know, somehow there was like this line all through from Jesus' time. No, all it was was the it Jehovah's Witnesses. was a dude in New York City. Yeah. And they were only, it wasn't even like he was that original, actually. Like the Miller, the guy, William Miller, the Millerites believed a lot of the same things that he, the founder of Joseph and Charles Taze Russell, ended up adopting. He was just sort of like, oh, like that kind of, he was a follower of the Millers for, Miller's follower for a while and then moved on to something else. And they were just all part of that second great awakening of religious movement, fundamentalist religious movement in the United States, which was only just a Sec- like a backlash to the growing secularism of the time. Yes, yeah, like the internet bubble, like everybody was starting a cult. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> we're all human. Human history just repeats itself in different forms, right? But it, to me, like to suddenly realize, like, oh wait a second, my religion was just this thing that was actually just formed as a sort of knee jerk reaction to something else. How on earth is that anything special? It's just a societal 
construction that was happened like to be in the right place at the right time and then had some charismatic leaders and instituted this idea that we should all preach and so it propagated and became bigger and more successful but really it wasn't much more than you know any other little fragmented sect that came along it just happened to survive and thrive like a few others did as well so yeah when i learned that i was like oh man if i had learned this and realized that this religion was not what i thought it was back then i I probably would have left but you know it, it helps not only to not have a lot of information at your fingertips but also to not be a critical thinker which also university teaches um so yeah, it's Someday. been a real revelation yeah. going to, going to college as an adult now and learning all this stuff and learning about you know social construction and like sociology and taking some religion classes and understanding like what religion actually is has changed my entire life. <laughs> I mean, your book is really well written. I mean, I it's it's nicely written, and and at a few points in it, you talk about that even as a young person, you liked books and you read books. I'm not sure. Like, what books were you reading? Well, I would go to the library and my mom would take us to the library. So it wasn't like we weren't allowed to read books, but my, my parents were strange in the sense that like they didn't really supervise me much. So at the beginning, I was just reading the average, you know, Judy Bloom, whatever, like kids books. But as I got older, I just started reading the classics often because I, there was a bookstore near my house and the classics were the cheapest books too, because you could just get like these penguin trade paperbacks or whatever. Right. Um, so I, I felt like my real first literary coming of age was that one of the first classics I ever read was like D.H. Lawrence, Sons and Lovers. <laughs> like these books are like very intense um, books that were all part of this romantic movement, not romantic in the sense of male-female love, but of like love of nature. And I would find I would have these kinds of like religious or spiritual experiences, even sometimes reading D.H. Lawrence literature, like a work of art. And I didn't know anything about art and I didn't know anything about literature by this point. I was like an early teenager probably. Um, But I just became addicted to it. And then I loved Dickens after that. And I just, I just read a lot. I also read all the Jehovah's Witness publications, which most people my age weren't doing. Like a lot of teenagers just didn't do that, but I, I read everything. (laughs) But like that didn't, there was nothing in there. Like, cause I'm thinking about later on when you get in this conversation, when when you get in this conversation with this fellow named Jonathan, um, he's posing questions to you that really shake you. Yeah. And I'm going like, but nothing that Dickens asked or nothing that Dostoevsky asked, th- somehow those didn't jam you up. No, it's funny because all of the stuff, like when you're a Jehovah's Witness, there is this greater world outside around you and you do interact with it. It wasn't like we lived in a complete bubble. We just didn't get close to anyone in the world, but we still had jobs and, you know, we knew people at school. We went to normal schools as far as going up to grade 12, at least to graduate high school. But it was always like a great separation. Like that was the worldly stuff. And then like we had the truth. So, you know, okay. you could sort of dabble and like learn to enjoy some things maybe. And sometimes a lot of people did that secretly because there's a lot of things you're not really supposed to dabble in, in the world. But still, when you have this indoctrination, like I think that the Jehovah's Witness faith is, it's more than just a faith or, you know, or a belief. It's actually indoctrination. And interestingly, when I, started reading other books after I left the Joe's Witnesses about, you know, indoctrination, mind control, the Bible, all different books. Uh, I started to learn that 
a lot of the things that Jehovah's Witnesses use, Jehovah's Witnesses use to keep people in are actually things that are like thought control tactics or brainwashing tactics, which are, yeah. you know, I'm not talking about like a list on the internet. How do you know you're brainwashed? No, it's like, these are psycholo- psychologists and psychiatrists who have studied thought control and Jehovah's Witnesses use oh. that. So you end up policing yourself. So, you know, I might read something that challenges my faith, but I, I, I can police my own thoughts to sort of get them back in line to where they need to be. And the difference with Jonathan was, is I think I was older by that point. I was, um, I was living in a different culture. I had been exposed to things that had sort of shaken my, my understanding of how things worked or my understanding of my own beliefs. And so there was sort of like a bit of fertile territory by the time I got to the point where those questions were asked of me directly. I'm, I, I want to circle back because I want to get to that moment. But like your father shows up in this book. Yeah. Your husband shows up in this book. Yeah. And your partner now, um, or at least the par- your partner when you, when you had your children shows up yeah. in this book. None of them are fleshed out. I don't think your husband is even named. Yeah, it's funny. Um, <laughs> Very astute observation. <laughs> <laughs> I got to think that somehow your conversations with your husband must have influenced the way you were thinking or, or, or like either, either, either against it or for it or, but like it's it sort of when I was reading your book, I was like, it's like, it's all happening in your brain, but I can't tell who's influencing it. Mm. Did, did, did any of those guys have a big influence on your spiritual journey? That's such a good question. It's such an interesting observation too. Well, <clears throat> It is funny because when I think about, first of all, to speak to my father, he was not a really strong Jehovah's Witness. Obviously, as I mentioned in the book, he had an alcohol problem, so that didn't help. He was also a very shy person, and he didn't like the preaching, which if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you can't really be a full-fledged Jehovah's Witness unless you preach. So my dad, yeah, when it came to the spiritual things, it's funny that you say this because it was the women, especially my grandmother and the family who were the major spiritual influence on me, um, not the men. And then interestingly, my brother also left, right? So uh, mm-hmm. it's an interesting observation. So then come fast forward later to my husband. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of a dual thing. So with regard to my husband, I really struggled with writing the book because I, it, I didn't want to gratuitously like embarrass him. And I knew how much he would not want to be in a book by an apostate, you know? So I couldn't help but be affected by that because the thing is, here's the thing about my personality is I'm very open. Like you could ask me any question and I will be honest with my answer, but I'm also a really good secret keeper for my friends. And so I found it really felt unnatural to me to expose things about him that would make him feel embarrassed. Because of course, you know, in any relationship, I mean, there's things that both parties contribute to its demise, but mostly I just talked about my own felt some sort of responsibility to just kind of take take the responsibility onto myself somehow. Which, and, you know, in retrospect, I think it's kind of a, for a memoirist, it's like, I think that's, it's like a bad trait for a memoirist to, to protect other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you have to live with yourself at the end of the day. I don't know. It's a strange thing. But also, the, again, it was kind of the same thing with my father, it's funny. I feel like you're like a psychiatrist is seeing things I'm, I'm only seeing because you pointed them out. Um, 
But my husband was also not in the family. I was the spiritual force. Like I was the one who wanted to go preaching. I was the one that wanted to go learn Mandarin and he went along, but I was the one who was spearheading all of the things that we did together that went above and beyond the sort of baseline thing that most normal, you know, rank and file Jehovah's Witnesses would do. Um, So that's kind of strange, right? And also that's unusual in a Jehovah's Witness relationship because women are told to be the submissive ones and yeah, yeah, lesser position and let the, let the husband charge ahead with the lead. Um, and you just are, he's like the captain of the ship. Um, and in our relationship, it wasn't really as like that as much. Um, I guess I sort of am a person (laughs) kind of like a strong will. Um, and he was a lot more passive in nature. So there was also that. And also I think because our relationship was, based around this preaching work. Like we got together very young as most Jehovah's Witnesses do. And our marriage wasn't, it wasn't like a really, it didn't have a real, it wasn't a momentous relationship for me, which is sad. It's like my marriage. It was a long, you know, we were together like nine years in the end. Um, But it wasn't a significant relationship for me, oddly enough, because it just didn't have an emotional depth to it. It was sort of like we were on this. And it feels like he was kind of the rebound guy after, because you had had like a hot relationship. I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to do the right thing. I had been in a relationship with someone before that, that, you know, I had been kicked out of the church for having sex because you don't let have sex outside of marriage. Um, And yeah, and then I think it was just me trying to sort of like as a knee jerk reaction, go back to the road that I knew would be the road that would lead to paradise by marrying this person who was, you know, a proper like straight, Jehovah's witness. Proper Jehovah's witness. Yeah. Cause when I'm reading this, I'm going like either she's leaving him out to protect him, mm-hmm. which I, I understand. Yeah. Or she's leaving him out because he wasn't that significant to her intellectual development or her spiritual That's development. Definitely like true. He, yeah. <laughs> he was like a shadow, like he was there, but she wasn't, she wasn't so into him that what he thought really mattered. And she no, wasn't running. She wasn't coming home going like, oh my gosh, I just had this thought. Like, what if God isn't real? And no, like, no, we didn't what, talk and, like and, that. And, yeah. <laughs> no. Also, you have to understand when you're a Jehovah's Witness, if you have doubts and you reveal them to anyone, the consequences are swift and severe. So, you know, some people I think who do have strong marriages, I've known people who have left the Jehovah's Witnesses and both partners left. Yes, they did. Oftentimes one of the partners would have had doubts before the other and shared it. And eventually they sort of together worked through them and both came on the other side, either staying in or going out. But um, I didn't have that kind of relationship. I, I didn't. He would have turned you in. I think so. Yeah. And not, and all a hundred percent out of love, not because he was evil, because he, they think that turning you in is the thing that's going to save you. The elders will intervene and they'll have like an intervention and they'll like basically reprogram you. Although they don't think that of that as that, that that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. Um, so yeah, I had to be pretty guarded because I knew that he wasn't having any doubts. Like it was evident to me that he was a full true believers right up to the end. And he still is to this day. Yeah. Did he, did I um, and. Do you know what happened to him? Yeah, I um, oh, you I had to, to contact him. It. Oh, no, it's fine. I had to contact him because I was looking for some, you know, the shared belongings that 
were put in storage somewhere. And yeah, he got, he ended up staying in China a long time after I left and he ended up marrying another Jehovah's Witness woman and then moves back to the States. Yeah. I, I, I wondered if he had remarried and, yeah. and what's weird is like, if you're me, I kind of hope he married a genuine Jehovah's Witness. Same. Like, and I, I was always like, happy. I was always like, I know he's mad at me, but I did him a favor. I took the fall, man. <laughs> like, you're going to be much yeah. happier. And it's funny because one time I did kind of somehow, I think on, I think I ha- saw his mom's Instagram or something. And I saw a picture of him with the, his new wife. And I was like, she looks so much better for him than I was. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, he's probably thanking me. <laughs> She looked very sweet and very, yeah. you know, not like me, not complicated Submissive. like me. Yeah. <laughs> you also leave your your partner in New York. And, and and are you still together? Yeah. Yeah. And so the father of your children. Yes. Um and and I know like my sense is, my guess is that you have a very different kind of relationship with that man than you did with your husband. Oh yes, definitely. Um, but he is nonetheless, he is not, his personality does not shine through the pages. Yeah. But I mean, that's also kind of a product of that. The last chapter is this, a lot is compressed into, it's almost like an epilogue, that last chapter. Yeah. So the story really ends in China when I leave China. And then there right. at the end of the book, there is one chapter that basically the reader, you have to tell the reader what happened to you like when you finally did escape so that's what that chapter is about so some people are like that chapter could be a sequel to the book because there's so much that happens in the ensuing 10 years after I leave that in, in if anything it's more just like a truncated version of what yeah. my life ended up as and that's why there's not really a focus on anything besides essentially what became a, a tragedy that kind of like filled up all those pages. You know, when you were talking about like what you're interested in talking about now, um, I mean, it's funny because the two things that I find myself talking about the most these days with deconverted people that I, that I kind of counsel with, um, one of them is a lot of them are married to people that are still of the faith Mm-hmm. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Oh, um, man, and it hard. is really, it is really hard. And, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that you don't have very, you don't, you, you don't have much optimism for an interfaith marriage. I don't, but you know, it's funny because there is one challenge, I think, for a lot of people who leave a really high control group, intense group, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then go on to have a relationship with someone who has no familiarity with the religion that you can, it, it is impossible for anyone to really understand what it is like to, for example, lose your entire history, all your friends, like almost all your family. And though I have a very compassionate partner, like he listens, but it's like, nobody really gets it. And it wasn't until years after living in New York, I met another ex Jehovah's witness just through chance. And the second I met her, I was just overwhelmed by this feeling of like family and, and depth and like history. And even though we had only oh known gosh, each yeah. other for, you know, a couple hours. So there is something to, I think that it's difficult to lose your faith or leave your religion or whatever you want to call it. But there is something about maybe if you still have some 
a partner who still understands, there can be something comforting about that. Maybe. I don't know. That's just another way of looking at it. I think there's probably a great deal of challenge. Uh, you know, there's a, I got to tell you, there's a huge difference between the comfort that two deconverted people have. We're like, oh. I, I know where we were <laughs> and I know where we are. Yeah, and sense. the discomfort that you have when you're talking to somebody who literally believes you are doomed to hell. Oh my goodness. Actually, yeah. When I think about it that way, I don't even know how, you, how people can do it. <laughs> No, I mean, at least when you're in the Jehovah's Witness, they do you the courtesy of saying, we won't talk to you. Yeah. Because it's, it's even weirder sometimes to talk to somebody who believes that you are doomed and believes that you are yeah. you know, a problem um, or that you're dangerous. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to let my kids, I don't want you to have any influence over my kids, especially if you happen to be married to that person. Yeah, and they, and they want you to stop talking to your children about anything that matters to you because you're endangering them. Like that's, you know. So so that, I mean, I, I'm shocked that in the ten years that you came out of the faith, that you haven't had more contact with more deconverted Jehovah's Witnesses, and and, and you know, you would probably have a very have similar now. conversation. Have you have now, okay? Yeah, that was the first one. Because that's a big comfort, isn't it? Oh, it yeah, it definitely is. In fact, as you're talking about yeah. it, I just feel like I don't know how people do it because if I really imagine myself having tried to continue in a marriage with those circumstances, and especially if there were children involved, I don't, I don't know how people can do it. That's rough. They must really love each other. Or they must be really economically trapped or, that, or they must yeah. be terrified of living in rural Georgia um, trying to stay close to their kids yeah. and having like being completely socially shunned. Like there are a lot of reasons yeah. why people stay um, in those relationships and some, sometimes hidden and sometimes open, but there's a reason why people stay, but it is hard as heck. Um, yeah. And, 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 and what's, what's interesting is, is that I think one of the places that it gets really hard is the second part of that last chapter of your book which is this tragedy that you experienced with your, with your baby son. Mm -hmm. Would you, could you talk about that just for a little bit? Yeah. What happened um, and, and what, it, and what it meant to you? Yeah. So after I had been in, I moved away from China after I left the religion and I had been, I moved to New York and I had been here. Let me see how many years when it had gone by around, around seven years had gone by. Um, and I was now in a relationship with, my partner. And, uh, I was now getting to be like, you know, in my later thirties and I wanted, I had never wanted to have children when I was a witness because I thought that paradise was coming and I was going to wait for then. So now my own mortality was you know, facing me. And so I wanted to, I decided I want to have children. So we had a child, um, and he, when he was born, it was incredible. Um, in, in on many levels, as it always is for most people when they have children, but on this other ac extra level in that it was some way that I, I felt like I had been some sort of sense of spirituality or something had been restored to me and not in the sense of like, I suddenly believed in God or didn't believe in God. I still am not really an atheist, but it wasn't like a God, a spirituality as, as far as an, an experience of God. It was more the experience of this connection between a mother and a child and how like infinite it felt and how beautiful and like numinous it felt 
spiritual, the way that my little son would look at me and just the experience of even the physicality of having a newborn baby when you're a woman and like breastfeeding. And like, it was just such an, it was, I don't even know what the word is like spiritual experience. I don't, I feel like transcendent, transcendent, like our language doesn't have the right word for it because it felt godlike, but not anything to do with the way that I used to have a feel I had a relationship with some higher power, but it felt like some higher power was in the child and the, in, in the, what was going on between us <laughs> anyway, but it's weird. You know, it's like the, when, when people say that thing about like, it's like, you're a part of something bigger than yeah. yourself. Yeah. It's like the love that's when I see my daughter and, and her baby, I'm like, there's something happening, a bubble around them. Yeah. Uh, and they're both part of it, but it's, 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 it's bigger. It's like bigger than that. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. Um, and so that was like a wonderful, beautiful experience. But on the practical front, I had been, since I left the religion, I had had a hard time getting my life sort of onto like a financially stable track. And I am like a very, I am a real hustler. Like I have tried, but when I moved to New York, it was the financial crisis. I got a job, then I lost a job for a year. I couldn't get another job. And, you know, coming out of a group like the witnesses, you don't have a college education. You don't have a resume that makes any sense because all I'd ever done was part-time jobs like and preaching. Um, so while, and New York is a hard place to start over again, which I didn't realize I was very naive when I got here. So by the time yeah, of you all know, places to go, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I was, I mean, I was, I was a really, really big idiot move, but in the end, it worked out. Yeah, when, when, when Frank is singing, "If you can make it here, you'll know, make right? it any. If you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere." What he's saying is, this is the hardest place to make it. He's like, "Don't come. Um, I should don't go there." Exactly. But I think at the time when I left the religion, I was like, I couldn't go home. I didn't want to go home because everyone in my home city was shunning me, and it was a small city. And I just, I did, I was impulsive. I was like, I just got to do something and I'm going to go somewhere, do for the first time in my life, do something that I want to do because I love New York, um, you know, without thinking much about how that would actually work. Yeah, but, <laughs> but anyway, it was tough. Yeah. So a few years had gone by and I had finally gotten to the point where I actually had a pretty okay job. Like it wasn't really lucrative career, but it was at a, at a company that was scholastic, which is like a very good company. I had good health insurance. I had the respect of my boss. Um, and to actually get a job like that when you don't have a degree, is kind of a miracle. So I was worried about ever losing that job because I had been in a position before of how hard it was for me to get another job. Yeah. So what yeah. happened was uh, given that it's America, there's not much, paid leave, maternity leave. So as I was with home with my son on my maternity leave, I kept on getting a lot of anxiety about this date, you know, in the not too distant future where I was going to have to leave him and go back to work. Ultimately, I wait, my partner and I weighed all the options and he was freelance. He didn't have health insurance. I was the one that kind of had the more stable work, although he made more money, but it was, you know, when you're in America, there's a lot of these things like at play that you got to consider about being responsible for your child, including health insurance. So at the end of the day, I asked my work if I could stay home longer because I just felt like he seemed so small. I didn't want to leave him. Now he was like three and a half months old, but they said, no, you have to quit if you don't come back on this day. So I decided to go, I better go back to work. Why it felt okay as well is that my job was letting me do part-time when I got back and I found a daycare very close to the 
my workplace so I could still go back and breastfeed him on my breaks. Unfortunately, after that first morning, after I dropped him off, I went to work. I came back two and a half later, hours later, and he had died. He was unconscious. When I walked in the door, I didn't know anything was wrong, but he had gone for a nap and just never woken up. So that was what happened. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I remember reading that and just thinking, oh my goodness, like, who was there for you? Who, 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 what, what, what did you do? Well, the, I had already been in the real world by this point for about seven years. And I had already been in New York for like six years or something. Um, so I had a community of people and I mean, beyond my own community, the greater public, because of course this story was kind of sensational and it was in newspapers. Um, there were there was this moment of the the worst moment of my life also became this moment where so many people showed love and came to help in many different ways. Um, so it wasn't like I didn't have anyone then. I already did have people around me. Um, but what was hard to believe, I mean, it was hard on every level, but what was hard to believe was like, I remember when it happened, I thought, I can't believe that this can also happen to me. I thought that I had finally overcome so much that like the universe or whatever would not make this happen to my baby. Yeah. Like it happens, but it, in my mind, it was like, no, no, it wouldn't happen to me. Like I, I couldn't, it was so hard to believe that something, some other loss so immense would happen when I finally felt like I was getting back on my feet again. And, and did you, did you go knee-jerk religious and go like, I must have done something wrong. This is punishment. Like, oh my no, God. And, and, you know, part of it might be because one thing about the Joseph is that they, they don't, there is no teaching in my former beliefs that says like, if you do something, God will punish you. It's not really the way that the theology is. So maybe that's mm -hmm. why my mind didn't go there, but I didn't need to go there because I was already blaming myself. Like I did feel it, it was my fault that he wouldn't be dead if I hadn't have left him. So it wasn't even a religious thing. It was more like a maternal thing. Every mother I know that's had a child die finds a way to blame themselves, even even if it's not their fault. Which maybe you know, one sort of anthropological indicator of the origins of religion. You know, shit happens, yeah. and we 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 naturally find a way to make ourselves responsible for it because at least that explains it. Yeah. And then we have to find a way to get out of or to be redeemed from our responsibility for all the horrible things that happen in the universe. Cause of course they're all our fault. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, I do, that's basically my, my belief about religion now is that it is something that humans have constructed, constructed. It doesn't really have anything to do with God. It's it's interesting though. I mean, earlier in the conversation, you said something about like I'm not really an atheist, and yeah. what what is that like? In, in I mean, in the context of this moment of your life, like what does that mean? Um, it's funny because I I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I talk about it in my book a little bit. But just to me, there's like it's a strangest paradox because um, you know you go through a loss like a loss of your child in this way 
in this really tragic and unexpected way. Um, and the, de- the devastation is complete. Like you could never, even if you, I think I know many people who were religious and this happened to, and they said that their faith is shaken or gone because they can't believe that a God would allow this child who was healthy and everything was fine. Why, why allow that child to be born if it's just going to die like a few months later and cause all this pain? Um, so there's that side of it. Um, but then the other side of it is that you had just, for me, I had just gone through this pregnancy and I remember the moment where they put the ultrasound on the baby for the first time. I think it was around 20 weeks or something or 16 weeks. And that, you know, they put that wand up there and you see on the screen, it's like fully formed spine, like yeah. arms moving, feet jumping. I, it was so bizarre to me. I couldn't understand how this thing had formed without me doing anything except eat <laughs> and sleep, you know? Um, it was this, and then the miracle of them seeing them when they're born and like seeing them change and learn already and grow. And the way that my body was like so perfectly responsive to what he needed as far as like nourishing him. All of this stuff to me was just mind blowing. And it, for me, undeniable. I've just, yeah. And for me, obviously like I, some people just seem to be more innately prone to believing in something. And I'm one of those people where I was like, I can't believe this just has all happened by chance. Like it's too amazing. It's too magical. The love, the, everything seems so orchestrated in some way. So that's what I mean when I say I'm not an atheist. But then on the other hand, I don't believe in God in the way that I used to believe in God or believe in the God of the Bible or the God of, any other holy book. I think all of those things are human concepts of a God that they create. I just think God's something we can't understand, at least right now. I mean, in some ways, listening to you, I, I sort of, I'm surprised um, because, you know, I, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I mean, like, this is, this is not like an interview question. I'm just thinking about this, but yeah. I'm sort of going like, you don't have that experience when you step in a, in a, in a mud puddle, you know, you don't just look down and go like, Oh my gosh, like <laughs> there must be something going on here. Yeah. You, you, you go like, nah, this is natural. Like mud, you know, planets yeah. explode and you know, elements get formed and there's water and like, it's, a, it's, it's incredibly rare. Yeah. There's not mud on many planets, but like, and yet that is every bit as unlikely and bizarre and strange and miraculous as the formation of a baby in a mother's womb. And so I, what I find myself doing going is like, I'm amazed that natural processes have caused anything. Life, like, like a single celled organism is unbelievable. Yeah. And as far as we know, we haven't seen it anywhere else. Um, so, you know, I mean, I know, I know mathematically it probably is happening somewhere else, but like life itself is so miraculous that I sort of go, it, it amazes me that that could happen by natural processes. But once you give me natural processes, making anything like, I feel like natural processes can make everything, including the love. Yeah. I mean, I get the feeling even about a mud puddle sometimes. I'm weird. <laughs> 
Um, I, I, this is like some weird thing I've had since I was a kid that I just have religious experiences. Um, but not, I, I've now come to realize they're not anything to do with religion. And so I don't know what the vocabulary for it is, but this sense of like otherworldliness or awe or magic, it's, I can't reconcile it without there being some kind of like something behind it. Something like I don't know. I don't think we're. Po- it's possible for our minds to understand it. No, that that that, that I'm with you on. <laughs> but I wonder, like, in, instead of ascribing it to something behind it, yeah, wouldn't it be easier to ascribe it to my inability to grasp it? No, I agree with you. I think that's what I'm getting at because I don't have any definition for what the thing is I'm talking about that's behind it. <laughs> All I'm talking about, I always sum up my beliefs now is that like, I believe in magic because it's a magicalness, basically. Not that I think it's actually magic, but that it's just that it's too incredible to understand. But it feels like it's just a matter of perspective, almost like t- in that book, Flatland, where like three dimensional things seem magical to the people mm-hmm. who live in Flatland in two dimensions. It's one dimension beyond our ability to understand it. Yeah. But, but, but I guess what I'm saying is like, you can either say there's something amazing out there or you can say I'm not very good at grasping the totality of what of of what of reality. Yeah. And there, like to me it's it, it like it's a matter of perspective like from the perspective of reality I'm an idiot. From the perspective of me reality is magical. Yeah. And That's I sort of go great explanation. <laughs> I've never said that before, but like, I feel like I want to write it down. Like, I'm like, yeah, that, that helps me. Um, and, and so for me, I got burned so many times in so many ways. And I've known so many people that got burned so many times in so many ways by people selling the idea of the thing that's amazing. That's that like is beyond us. And I think like, I would much rather sell the idea of humility Mm-hmm. We're finite, we're limited. Like, I mean, heck, octopuses see like a range of colors we can't see. Like, it doesn't mean they're not there. It's just like our eyes, all animals develop to like be sensitive to the things that their survival depends upon and to ignore the rest. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with just accepting my finitude. It's a lot less scary to me than projecting that there's something behind all of this. Because the truth is, when your kid dies, I don't want there to be anything mean. Like, like the meaningless of the no, universe yeah. is the only safety for me. Yeah, because otherwise it would be personal. And that's yeah. like intolerable. The universe hates you. That's why people come up with explanations. Like, of course, I've heard them all when people try to comfort you, but it's often not comforting. But people, you know, use explanations like, God, you did another angel or these oh, types God. of things. It's like, it's like the meanest thing you could say to a parent who's lost a child. And, and I have to be honest with you, Amber, the, the, there's only one reason like I'm bothering to belabor this point in this conversation with you mm-hmm. is because when I read that last chapter of your book, there was something you said in there that spoke to me so deeply because when you were talking about the experience of losing your son, the thing that spoke to me so deeply was you are the living embodiment of what I say when I'm comforting people that have just lost a child. And what I say to them is like, it isn't fair. It isn't right. This isn't good. This is horrible. This is a tragedy. 
But the reality is that your grief is a reflection of the fact that you loved this child. And on some level, even if the child died in the womb, they experienced that love. They felt the nurture. They, 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 mm-hmm. and, and like, it isn't enough. It isn't what we would have wanted. We wanted much, much more, but like, it's not nothing either. And I never have met a parent who lost a child who said they wishes that child had never been born. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, feels like such a privilege to have known them. Yeah. Which makes, that's what makes it so much harder to lose them because of that great privilege and joy and, I don't know. It's um because grief has this function of keeping my son with me every day, even though it's kind of agony yeah. to feel it. But there's not been a day in four years that I haven't been feeling my, like something for my son. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a strange thing. Yeah. Like do you, as a parent who's lost a child, do you want to stop grieving? Like I never think, Oh, like I want this pain to go away sometimes, but I don't like, I can't really say that I want to stop grieving because you don't want that relationship to go away. Cause the grief, as you say, is a reflection of the depth of love that you held. And, and, but, but I guess that the other thing, the reason why I'm so fascinated by you is because you stayed with your partner and you had another baby. And, and my understanding is that that hardly ever happens. I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if anyone has statistics on that. Cause I do know other people have lost children who have done the same now, but I mean, for me personally, um, there was no not doing that. Um, if it, you know, thankfully it was possible, but, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like being a mother and then not being a mother is, it would have been fine if it's fine to never have children. Like I would have been fine if I had never been a mother but to become a mother and then suddenly have no child was like intolerable to me. Um, And I know people that that's happened to, and they haven't been able to go on to have another child. And I feel so deeply for them. Um, So there's that, but also the idea that like, I can't have my son Carl, but I could have a sibling like for him some little creature with his, you know, similar genetic makeup. Right. I I couldn't imagine not trying to create that, even if I couldn't have my son back. Um, Interestingly, like a lot of people sort of think like, oh, once you have the other kid, then it's okay. You know, sort of it's, but it's more okay. The sort of like, because at least you have a child. And I came to learn that like, no, it's, it's actually not okay. <laughs> I, it doesn't like I'm, it helps in the sense that I'm a mother again. Definitely. It helped, but it's, it never feels okay. It never feels like that child replaces the one that was lost, but I would, I shudder to think about if I wasn't able to have another, like Carl's sister. I don't know. I guess I, you get through it. You would find a way to bear it, but it's hard enough to bear even the way that things are now. Yeah. Do you, do you not share her name on purpose? Cause she's oh, no. her name's Sevi. <laughs> What's her name? Sevi. Sevi. Where does that come from? 
Um, this is so funny. Well, it's a long story, but my family name is Cornish of all things, which we only knew when the internet came around. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I just, I kind of wanted her to have some sort of connection to um, maybe my family history, I think because my family is so cut off from me. So I ended up picking that name because it was a Cornish name and it means strawberry. But if you want to hear something really crazy, it was only until like, it was only after she was named and I had posted her picture on Instagram. Someone I didn't even know who followed me on Instagram. They had followed me after Carl died um, because I had done some parental leave advocacy work. And there was a lot of people that were sort of um, interested in that work. Uh, Anyway, maybe like six weeks or so after she was born, this person, the stranger pointed out to me that, Oh, that's, she said, that's amazing that you named her Carl's middle name spelled backwards. And I looked and I was like, what? And then I realized as soon as she said it, that I had, because his middle name was Ives. Oh, it's wow. so crazy. Somehow I named my daughter, his middle name spelled backwards without even noticing or realizing. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. You know, yeah, it's really crazy. What's funny is like, I just listened to this hidden brain episode of that podcast. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they were talking about how people whose last name is Carpenter at a, at a higher rate become carpenters. Oh, that's um, th- and that people tend to like, if they meet somebody with their same birthday, they marry that person more, so more, funny. more frequently. Um, and, and they were talking about like, it's kind of like this hidden or th- this sort of subconscious narcissism where like we like things. Yeah. And what's weird is it seems like yours wasn't a subconscious narcissism, but a, a, a subconscious Carl. Yeah. Lism like some tie. Like, to- I, I love Carl and like, it just sort of shows up. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It was kind of amazing. <laughs> and, and so, so you go on. Um, and you know, I, I remember when I was back in my Christian days that, that we used to, they used to tell the story of, um, oh gosh, who was it that wrestled with the angel by the side of the Jordan river? I forget which, which biblical guy it was. Um, but I remember hearing, I think it was Jacob. Yeah, um, Jacob. There's a great verse at the end of that story where it said that, you know, from then on he walked with a limp. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that was a really good, good analogy or good, good image of somebody mm-hmm. who goes like, yeah, you go on, but like you're marked by that encounter, you know, you carry it and it sounds like you go on, but you, you carry the marks of both those really traumatic encounters in your life. Yeah. Um, definitely. I mean, it's a funny thing cause I, I wrote an article about having a child after losing a child recently and a lot like people will always when they give me like talk to me about that article I mean it was very raw and I mean no one that's read it hasn't cried I don't think where is it um it's in the New York Times okay oh okay I can send you a link um but anyways people always say to me after I write about this loss which I have a few times including in the book um they're like oh that must have been so hard to write and I always tell them, like, no, it's hard to read, but it wasn't hard to write because it's always, like, right under my skin. Like, I, what's hard for me is that I have to actively hide it all the time because, sure, you have friends and, like, people will want to be there for you, but people can't handle it. <laughs> like, you, people can handle listening to it maybe once 
or twice, but like if I had to really, if I could actually like share it as much as it's present within me, I mean, people would, I just know inherently that people would not be able to deal with it. It's too much and it's too intense. You kind of almost have to like shield other people from it because they can't manage it for you anyway. So it's a, it's a funny thing. Like for me, talking about it, sometimes people like don't talk to me about my son or they don't raise it because they don't want to upset me. But it's harder when people don't talk about it because then you just feel like you have to hide it. You have to hide this huge part of what's inside of you. Um. And it's like, very, makes you feel very alone. Yes. It's so interesting, you know, cause my, my daughter, um, had our first grandchild, um, five months ago. And so, you know, it's a big deal. And, um, I, I'm for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm aware. I, I, I sort of understand those bumper stickers that used to be around in the eighties that said like, please ask me about my grandchildren. <laughs> um, but you're right. People wouldn't think that you would be sort of sort of going like, please ask, like, I'm, you know, not, not like I'm happy to talk about it, but maybe I, sometimes I need to. Yeah. But nobody asks, honestly. And I get it. Cause I think that they think that's the compassionate thing to do, but it's funny how it's actually not, it's more compassionate to ask for me anyway. I don't know that it's the same for all parents, but. You're very generous. Cause I don't think people don't ask because they're being compassionate. I think people don't ask because they're, they're, they're afraid. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't, they, they don't want to carry your burden. Um, I think it's maybe not even, they don't want to, but they don't know how to. Yeah. Cause I mean, even I don't know how to, I just do. <laughs> Are you talking like, like, it sounds like when, when Carl died, you know, one of the things that you, you figured out was not that you hadn't figured it out before, but that like child leave in this country isn't very generous and, 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 and that the pressures on new parents are just terrible. And it sounds like, like, did you get political about that or did you get activist about that? Yeah, I did. Which is kind of funny too, because Joe's witnesses don't even vote. So that right. was a real interesting re knee jerk reaction that I had. I think maybe it was the extent to which I had maybe entered the real world because one of the first things I thought about doing after Carl died was like, I went and talked to a lawyer to find out if he knew he was an activist lawyer. He had worked with Occupy Wall Street or something. I don't know. But I was like, how do we change the laws? Like that was the first thing I wanted, like honestly, a few days after Carl died, I felt like this like compulsion to mm -hmm. act because it felt so, so wrong, especially given that, I mean, the U.S. is one of only two countries in the world, I think, that doesn't have any kind of parental leave. It's like national parental leave program. But also, I've lived in countries where they have it, and it works, and it doesn't make any sense why they don't have it here. So I, I think it was just funny that like the, one of the first impulses I had was to do something politically, because my whole life, I've been told to stay out of those things as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, so that was, inter it was it was interesting. I don't know. It was funny that I was just pushed. I just decided to do that. So, so you wrote this book. I mean, like, and I don't know if like, are you still do, are you still feeling like I need to write or talk or be active on that issue? Or are you sort of like, that was, that's, that was a thing I did for a minute, but now I've moved on. 
Well, it's complicated. Um, I'm working on a few things in the back channels, but this kind of change takes a long time and it takes a lot of bureaucracy. And right now there is a bill that is being sort of like formulated in the government. Um, there's like all kinds of hearings and policy, blah, 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 that has to happen. So right now it's kind of with the wonks, you know, like right. I think that when that campaign happened, a lot of people did know Carl's story and it got very big. And like the Clinton headquarters had a meeting with me and the woman that was a Republican mom that I worked on this campaign with. Um, we tried to go to Trump Tower, but Trump uh, shortly after that did come out with a parental leave platform. It was during the election that we did this campaign. Um so a lot seemed to like the moment, a cultural, a cultural shift did seem to happen around that time. And all of the people that were the candidates for presidency started talking about parental leave, which they had never done in an election before. So now it's just like the slow slog of a bill moving through all the different stages. So when it comes, when it comes to a vote or something like you may, then you may get back out there. For sure. Yeah. 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 Hey, listen, like, I don't know. <laughs> I really was very touched by your story. Um, and I'm, I'm even listening to you talk now. I'm, I'm more sort of struck by, I think what always amazes me when somebody comes out of a cult is that, cause oftentimes they, they aren't fully formed. Um, their whole That's aspects true. of human maturity that they haven't been allowed to develop. Mm-hmm. And you seem really formed at this stage <laughs> in the game. That's funny. I, I've been thinking about this lately where just due to being asked different questions while I'm talking about my book, where I've come to the realization that even though I was a really good Jehovah's Witness, like I did, I went to the nth degree farther than many Jehovah's Witnesses go, like learn Mandarin, going to China. Um, I actually make a much better worldly person, as they call us, um, than Jehovah's Witness because I actually, the second I got out here, I was like, oh, this is where I belong. I really like it here. <laughs> and I think this is the thing is that I just felt like I found the place where I could be who I was. I think when I was growing up in the religion and cult and just like indoctrination, I was a version of myself for sure. But since leaving, I've just become more myself than ever, which is obviously the problem. That's why they kick you out. <laughs> um, it's not really looked highly upon to just be yourself, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I love learning. It's so interesting because like you just basically told the story, as I understand it, of the enlightenment in the sense <laughs> really? of, yeah, because people sort of go like, wait a second, you know, human innovation for, I mean, for most of human history, like one idea would happen and then like 150 years would go by before the next idea happened. <laughs> and, and, and And then in the enlightenment, Boom, all this stuff is going on. And, and you go, sort of go like, did people get smarter? Like, like did, did something happen in their brains? And, and the theory that I've understood is, is that up until the Enlightenment, the brightest minds used their creativity to creatively figure out ways to be more orthodox, to like outdo each other yeah. in following the rules. Yeah. And, and then... All of a sudden, like the idea, the, the little switch that got flipped was, hey, use that creativity to question the rules. Mm-hmm. And no one had ever done that before. Um, and all of a sudden, and like, you, it seems like you 
used your big brain and your artistic impulses and your stuff all within it. To, you know, you were like so in that you were using all your creativity to figure out how to be orthodox. Mm -hmm, that's true. Because I mean, even going to China on some levels, like, let me take this. I'm going to like, I'm pedal to the metal. I'm going to be the world's best Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. And also to be a Jehovah's Witness in China did take a lot of creativity to figure out even how you would do your work. It was a very different exercise than right. before. So you're using all this, you know, like there you are, like you're, you're, you're finding a way to be creative within a structure. Yeah. And then also I, I've had this weird advantage of living in two completely different worlds. Like most people live in one culture or society and you can't help but be affected by your culture. Interestingly, the root word of culture, cult, you know, we all have a cult to some degree. Right. And I've had this unique experience of having been in a very insular, like close culture and then being completely outside of it and experiencing what most people experience as like their first culture as my second culture. So I guess it does also lead to some kind of questioning or seeing things with the eyes of an outsider, um, just seeing things maybe in a slightly different way, um, which helps with, you know, trying to see what, what you could do to change things or, you know, seeing yourself with maybe more awareness and this type of thing. Cause it's all invented. Yeah. I mean, even the one, you know, it, it reminds me of that joke that David Foster Wallace used to say, like, you know, where the one fish swims up to the other fish and says like, how's the water? And the other fish is like, what's water? Yeah. Cause you know, like you're in it. You don't even know it in the book. As I was reading it, when I got to the Jonathan thing and you end up meeting him and, and sort of having a relationship with him in real life. And then that doesn't work out. I found myself disappointed. Um, you know, I guess that, and that's like that, the, the woman that, that came out of, uh, Fred Phelps granddaughter or, or niece or whatever, that woman, I forget her name, um, who ends up marrying the person who was her. Oh, she does. Oh yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. She marries him, which, which in, in, in some sense, like, you know, I sort of go like, why was he so interested in talking with her? And, you know, like you go like, there must've been some chemistry going on there, you know, even through the internet, yeah. you know, where. And, I, and I'm reckoning there must have been some chemistry between you and Jonathan, even through the internet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was so smart. So I didn't even know what he looked like, but he was smart, really smart and just funny too. I don't know. Um, smart and funny and sexy. Yeah, but also smart in a way that nobody around me was. And I think that deep down, I'm a really intellectually curious person. And there was never any outlet for that. Like, sure, I took on learning Mandarin. That helped to like give me something to learn but I liked learning about things and here was just suddenly this one-on-one -on -one conduit to the outside world in a way that I had never allowed myself to experience it before but it is funny like I a couple of people have told me that they were shocked that I, I didn't when the relationship with Jonathan ended in the book and I've reflected on it a lot because the funny part is that now especially since the book came out and I gave it to him to read, I was really nervous that he wouldn't like the way he was portrayed. And I know that like everyone has two sides to any story, but it turned out that the, he loved it and he totally respected that it was my story and expressed remorse that he had hurt me at that time when I was already in a really difficult situation. But now we talk 
almost every day <laughs> again, which is weird. But really? his friends now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been very interesting to kind of process it. And part of it's interesting for me too, because like I, I've sort of like talked to him on and off through the years. Um, but now sort of seeing him with the person I am now versus who I was then. I mean, I see Jonathan very differently now than I did right. 10 years ago. Cause I'm, I'm no longer like the one kind of sitting at his feet, learning about the world. <laughs> and it strikes me how much for me, that would have been a really bad way to start a relationship, a bad time in my life to start another relationship because all it would have been was just a recreation of what had happened with my marriage. Oh my gosh. Where, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's so was. brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who I was and I was just, you know, embarking on this thing and also kind of also a reflection of the way that Jehovah's Witnesses viewed male female dynamics in that Jonathan was kind of like my savior and I was sort of the one Your spiritual leader. Exactly. He was. He had become my spiritual leader. And I I think back now and think, oh it's funny. I think it had to be that way because I had been so indoctrinated that you have to listen to men that maybe it was only like I could have heard it from a man. Oh my somehow. gosh. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's got to be true. Yeah. So it's like only with this time, you kind of see these things. And I think like, Jesus, like, I'm glad that I wasn't, didn't end up in that situation because the dynamic would have set off on that foot. And oh how could I have really gosh. grown? Yeah. yeah. You know, and the, the weird thing is, is that, you know, when, when I was right at the very beginning of my questioning, I ended up hanging out with a very, I, I spent a weekend with this really lovely older Christian gentleman um, who was a, a big time pastor and uh, writer and stuff. And we hung around and, and he said, Bart, he said, you're, you're really unhappy in your present life. And he said, what I'm really worried about is that you're going to, if you don't change what you're doing consciously, you're going to, at some point, do something to blow up your life subconsciously. <laughs> and he had, ha he, this guy had, had almost lost his marriage through an, an affair. Yeah. And what it was is he just hated the situation he was in. He sort of said, like, a lot of people, they just blow up their lives. And, um, and he said, you know, you, you may damage yeah. a lot of other people. You know, you got kids, you got a wife, you know, and, and so... It, that was really helpful to me. Um, and sometimes when I see people in these um, mixed faith marriages where one person's no longer a believer and one is, I, I sort of caution them. Like, if you're going to go, like, let's talk about that. Let's bring it out in the open. Let's figure out what you need to do. But like, because otherwise we tend to subconsciously do something that makes, that, that, that helps us to escape from something that we have to get out of. And I sometimes think like, in a sense, going and visiting Jonathan, that was the spark that blew up your life. Oh, definitely. And I often say this, you know, when you're in a religion that the only ending is an apocalypse, well, you don't, that's, that's what, how you end something. You blow it up. <laughs> wow. But also um, when you're in a religion that the only escape for marriage is adultery, well, the only way to get out of the marriage is adultery. Right, so right. it also kind of sets people up for it, in a, you know. It's, it's, it's sad. Like I don't feel, I kind of feel bad about it. I feel, I don't feel proud of like ending the marriage like that. 
but it's also kind of a reflection of who you know, the position that I'm in at the time. Well, that I guess that's why, I, I mean, like, it's funny, I, maybe this is the pastoral caregiver in me. Like, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it yeah. up is I'm sort of like, when I was, when I was reading about that, I, I, I didn't know, I don't know if I picked up on guilt, like I shouldn't have done it that way, or I, I wish I'd have done it in a less painful way or a way that, but I was like, I found myself thinking, unless you had had somebody else besides Jonathan who came alongside you and said, Amber, this is what's going to happen. Don't do it. Like, we got to get you out of there. But like, here's a better, here's a, here's another way out. I don't know how you could have done it any other way. Yeah. It's funny because the one thing, um, I was reading this book and was saying that for a lot of people, funny that you talked about the Westboro Baptist church girl, that woman, that same thing. But like when you're indoctrinated, one of the only, the most common and like most effective ways for someone to get out, <clears throat> according to experts, is that you do form an intimate relationship with someone on the outside. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is that I know that there was a couple of factors in me leaving, but number one, if I had not gone to China, I would still be a Jehovah's Witness for sure. I needed that disorientation and that space and that like step out of the routine and the community to get out. But also if I hadn't met Jonathan, I would not have made the move and got over the finish line to get out because I would never have like people have told Jehovah's Witnesses their religion is false all the time. But unless you trust, you have like a deep enough relationship with a person that you trust them enough to listen, you just dismiss it. So like, it's a strange thing because the only way I could have gotten out was by doing this, like forming some intimate connection somewhere where I would actually be willing to listen to somebody so it's yeah, and and, it's a, and, and on a, a, a not necessarily just on a rational level, like it wasn't just a rational relationship. It wasn't just yeah. a relationship of ideas. There was something else going on, like intimacy, like emotional yeah. intimacy. Um, yeah, which makes you and, and it that, takes down your guard a little or a lot, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, back to that idea of the meme. Jehovah's Witness and any good religion has within it a way of marginalizing the person who questions it and says like, don't trust them. They're of the devil. They're going to say this and you say that like they have shields for everything else. But the one thing you can't shield is intimacy. Like there's no, there's no, there's no intellectual shield for that. Yeah. Cause like I could read an article that would criticize my faith and it wouldn't have any effect on me if I read it. But here is a, someone that you've engaging with and that, in the next sentence makes you laugh really hard <laughs> or whatever cares yeah. about you in this way. Uh, it definitely makes you more apt to consider what they're saying. Um, so yeah, like it's a strange thing because of course I don't want to be, think of myself as the kind of person who is um, an adulterer. <laughs> right. Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, well, what would I choose being an adulterer or still being a Joe's witness? Well, I think, I would be choosing being an adult if that was well, the way you know, out. I mean, it's funny because have you know, I'm married for 30 years, happily married. Like, but for most of that married life, like my wife and I were not allowed to admit to each other that we even found another person attractive. Mm-hmm. If you look at another woman, lust in your yeah. heart, you've committed adultery, you know, all that stuff. But in my private life, in my mind, I would think, you know, what if I was in a plane crash? and got stranded on a desert island 
with like a beautiful woman and like there was no hope of being <laughs> rescued and we fell in love, then like it wouldn't be adultery, right? <laughs> um, then everyone would understand, you know. Um, but, you know, I was sort of trying to come up with some kind of like theoretical idea under which it would not be wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is hard thing about hard, like everything to do with because I mean all of these things are just social constructions even marriage and our rules around marriage monogamy yeah totally and I do sometimes even have a problem with it now because what happened and a, another friend of mine who used to be Joe says the same thing I still really like I actively try to be a good person of character but I do find that I question everything now where I think like well who says it has to be that way like to this day I refuse to get I don't I haven't gotten remarried I don't want to get married the second someone thinks about marriage I think like why would I get married? Like, I just don't even know why someone would do that now that I'm not subject to all those rules. I just, nothing makes any sense to me. It all is just social contracts. And really like at the end of the day, I, I can't help but just question whether all of them are, you know. But you just answer your own question. Like <laughs> contracts can be helpful. They're only worth the uh, integrity of the people that make them. Sometimes people make a contract where they go like, look, I'm going to exchange a little freedom for a little security here. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that something is right or wrong just because right now that's what society says is right or wrong too. No, right? no. I mean, but like, you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, I remember my wife and I reading this book, uh, you may have heard of it called Sex at Dawn. And it's a book about how sexuality evolved from the dawn of time. Like, and, and basically the, one of the conclusions of the book is like, monogamy is not natural. Yeah. And my wife and I read it and looked at each other and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is a, it's totally a social construct. And she's like, yeah, yeah. She's like, what do you want to do about it? And I was like, I was born in that society. I like the construct. She's like, me too. Let's just, we'll just stay. <laughs> like I you know, say, I liked your like, wife though, that she even was open enough to say that. <laughs> That's pretty oh, cool. Oh yeah, no, she was like totally open. But there was this kind of thing where we're looking at each other and going like, we look at our marriage differently now because we know that it isn't like, this isn't water. Yeah. This is a choice, yeah. not just being married, but like the concept of marriage is a social construct. Yeah, exactly. And we're like, we, 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 we're going to use it. It works for us. But like the idea of imposing it on other people or acting as though like it's immoral to, to, to consider a different construct. When you say like, I still try to be a good person, like, of course you do. Yeah. And the, the, the real question is, you know, by what do we measure right and wrong? And, you know, for me, it's really as simple as sort of trying to figure out like what causes human beings to flourish. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, the weird thing is, is that I know some Jehovah's witnesses that are older and that whole thing has, that's, you know, they got into that and it created structure for their lives and, uh, and it sounds terrible, but like, I'm not sure that if we pulled them out of the matrix at this point, that they could handle it, that their heads wouldn't explode. Yeah. And so sometimes I'm like, leave them in there. I think, yeah, it works for some people. I mean. It does. I, I have a hard time even being like <clears throat> agreeing with that statement. But I think, because I feel like it's somehow morally wrong for people to be controlled by other people in that way. But all the same, I agree with what you're saying. I know people. It's, like, it, it is weird, isn't it? Just it just works better for them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you ever, do you ever find yourself like going on the internet and trying to find Jehovah's Witnesses and get in conversations with them so that you can try to like be their Jonathan? <laughs> no, I don't. I have no time. I mean, I've been the last few years, <laughs> I've had like a baby writing a book and a day job. However, yeah. interestingly, since I wrote my book, I was expecting this onslaught perhaps of, you know, 
hecklers or like people angry at me. And then I had sort of forgotten how much witnesses of fear, they they fear someone like me apostate. So they think that I'm going to like manipulate them, even if they say hello to me, that's how they've been taught to think of people who leave. So then I realized, oh yeah, that's why I'm not getting a ton of emails or anything from people. If only you had been evangelical like me, you would have faced a huge onslaught. But uh, ongoing. I, yeah, I, I think it's because of this this fear, like we're like this character in their mind that's scary. Um, yeah, but I have had a couple, and it's funny because I can't I can't help but get into it with them when they start getting into it with me, um, because I know exactly the weak spots. Like I don't, it doesn't even take much work. I just feel like, oh, but like what about this? And recently, one of them was someone I don't know, but was sort of coming at me on Instagram. And by the end of the conversation, he was like, well, you know, I'm a reasonable person. And like, man, maybe, maybe I can see what you're saying. Like, and I was like, what? It's working? <laughs> I mean, he started out basically calling me a harlot or something and ended up saying that. So I was like, well, that's progress. Um, you know, for what it's worth, the, the, the hotter they come at you. Yeah, they're the, the hostile protest. The closer much. they are to, to turn it, you know, like, I, I forget who it was that said, like, we never defend an idea so strongly as right before we abandon it. Yeah, that was me um, with Jonathan, too. I fought a lot. I fought Yeah, hard. yeah. Hey, listen, speaking of having a baby and writing books and not having enough time, yeah. I've taken practically two hours of yours. That's been nice talking to you, though. I, I have enjoyed this conversation so much, I got to tell you. I just... I, I really am just, I sort of stand in awe of the degree of poise you have in the face of it all. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm really, I'm, I, it's really been a, uh, it's really been a blessing to me to, to kind of read you and talk to you. And, um, and I'm, a, I'm just, I'm just grateful. Um, I, you use that word at the end of your book. You're like, sort of like with all of this pain and all of this difficulty, I'm still grateful. Um, and I, you know, I am, I'm, I'm really grateful not only for my own life, but I'm, I'm really grateful for yours. Oh, well, thank you also for being willing to go there and talk about it. It's for me, that's something that feels really nice to talk to someone about, about all of these things. It's not the conversation you have every day. All right. How many, how many different sittings did you have to go through to get here? Nobody's commute is that long. Sorry that I'm not a more concise conversationalist in this case. But uh, I'm not sorry I met Amber. And I'm not sorry I got to share that conversation with you. And I got to tell you, I'm really not sorry that we have this podcast and this platform that enables us to kind of try to figure out what we can learn from other people that we can use in building relationships, in, in helping people that are struggling, and sometimes, as in this conversation, in cultivating a sense of gratitude and, and looking at life from a different angle that makes us go, oh my gosh, that's, I hadn't seen that. And there was this moment in that conversation where I said something and Amber said, boy, that, that's really helpful. And I thought, yeah, that's really helpful to me. Like you, she pulled it out of me and it was this idea of perspective that I think is really going to help me in talking to folks that have left religion but won't leave behind the idea of God, even though they really don't believe in anything like what we mean by God. And so anyway, it was just, yeah, I'm not sorry. I'll talk to you next time on Humanize Me. 
Amber Scora's great book, Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion and Finding a Life, is available on Amazon. You'll find a link in the show notes for this episode, and we recommend it highly. Amber can be found at amberscora, with an H, dot com. For more information on Bart Campolo, go to bartcampolo.org. You can support the show on Patreon and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life. Oh,